good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life. And as Director Paul alluded to uh, earlier in the service, we're actually coming to a close in our sermon series uh, in the book of Nehemiah. We've been studying this book together for uh, several weeks and a few months now. And uh, today, we're going to look at the very final chapter of the book here together. And our passage today comes from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, we're going to actually cover the entirety of the chapter, but just for the sake of time, I'll just be re- reading uh, certain uh, smaller snippets of the passage. But if I can invite everyone to please stand for the reading of God's word as an act of reverence and a sign of worship towards him. Let me read this for us. This is the word of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now, skipping... Skipping down to verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing? that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now down to verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And now down to verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated at this time. And one of my favorite movies um, of all time that I don't think I can get uh, ever sick of rewatching, and no, it's not a Marvel movie, is actually the 2001 film Ocean's Eleven. And if you've never seen the movie Ocean's Eleven, uh, the movie basically starts out with the main character, Daniel Ocean, uh, being set free after several years of being in prison for thievery and for robbery. And finally, after finishing out his sentence, Daniel Ocean is put on parole and he's released out back into society. And about halfway into the movie, Daniel Ocean's having this conversation with his ex-wife, Tess. And they get into kind of an argument because in the conversation, Tess finds out that after all these years of being locked up in prison for thievery, 
that Daniel's back out in the heist game, and he's currently planning a job to rob three major casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. In other words, she finds out that after all this time in prison, he's out doing the exact same thing that he got locked up for in the first place. Nothing has changed in the life of this man. And I bring that up because th that scenario, at least in that movie, is very similar to what we see here at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you just take a step back to remember everything that's happened so far in this arc of redemptive history, you'll remember that first Israel was exiled for their disobedience and for their idolatry. After seven year, 70 years of exile, they're finally allowed to return back to the holy city of Jerusalem. And under Nehemiah's leadership, they're able to rebuild all the walls. They're able to repopulate the city. They're able to worship again in the temple and rededicate their lives to God. And yet, at the, as the book ends here in chapter 13, we find out that after the walls are all rebuilt and restored, after Nehemiah's term as governor of the city ends, he actually goes back and returns to the king of Persia back in Susa. And a couple of years later, what Nehemiah does is he requests from the king let me go back to the city of Jerusalem. I just want to see how things are doing in this city that I spent 12 years in. And upon his arrival, what Nehemiah discovers is that the people of Israel were back to doing the exact same things that they were exiled for 70 years ago. In other words, friends, if you were expecting a happy, even a hopeful ending to the story in the book of Nehemiah, unfortunately, chapter 13 is a bit of a letdown. Because the real tragedy of this chapter is that everything that occurs here in this chapter Every single sin that Israel commits is actually a direct violation, a direct contradiction of vows they had all made previously back in chapter 10, if you remember the covenant renewal ceremony they had in chapter 10. In fact, a lot of commentators will say that chapters 10 and 13 of Nehemiah, they're actually parallels. They're supposed to be read side by side with one another. Now, for example, if you read the very last verse of Nehemiah chapter 10, in chapter 10, verse 39, in this covenant renewal ceremony, it ends with the people in, in verse 39 saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. But just a few chapters later, at the very end of the book of Nehemiah, it's followed up by Nehemiah's rebuke and his condemnation of the people in chapter 13, verse 11. In verse 11, Nehemiah returns to the city, he looks around, and he asks the people, why is the house of God forsaken? Why have you forsaken the house of God? Now, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the book of Nehemiah, he says this about the final chapter of the book and about the book as a whole. And he says, if I had to give a title, my own title for the book of Nehemiah, it might be the triumphant failure of reformation and revival. There are some glorious moments here, but there's a brutal realism to the way the book of Nehemiah ends. Brothers and sisters, it's that brutal realism that we're going to take a look at here as we study this, this final passage together. And specifically, there are three things that I think we can learn about our own lives as broken sinners as we look at the brutal realness with which Nehemiah describes the brokenness of the people of Israel. And those three things are first, we'll look at the subtleness of spiritual decline that happens in our lives. Secondly, we'll look at the seriousness of sin, the grievousness of sin before God. And then third, the third thing we'll learn is the surety or the certainty of our salvation. And so again, the three things that we'll look at, they all begin with S, so hopefully it'll be easy to remember. First, the subtleness of spiritual decline. Secondly, the seriousness of sin. And lastly, the surety of our salvation. So that's again, at least with the first point here. Now what we see in this passage as we look at this is there are three areas of life in which the people of Israel begin to backslide and they begin to decline in spiritually. And those three areas are first the temple, secondly the Sabbath, and then thirdly the family. Now briefly we're just going to go through this. First we see Israel's neglect of the temple. You know, this passage begins in verses 1 through 3 with this initial section that actually seems kind of hopeful. It seems to portray that Israel obeyed God's law because in verse 1, 
it says that the people are reading God's law, and they discover this random, almost seemingly law that says Ammonites and Moabites need to be excluded from the temple. They can't be in the temple. They can't worship with the people because they are historically opponents of God's people. They're God's enemies. If you look at verse 3, it seems that the people obey because verse 3 tells us as soon as the people heard this law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. But see, friends, if you read just one verse more in verse 4 and read on from verses 4 through 9, you learn that that's actually not the whole story. Because in verses 4 through 9, what happens is we learn that one of the priests of the temple named Eliashib, who is, older, who is brother-in-laws with this man Tobiah, a character that we've seen before in Nehemiah, what he does is he allows Tobiah to live in the chambers of the temple, to live in the area that was used to store the tithes and offerings of the temple. In other words, if the, a modern-day equivalent list would be, if I had a brother-in-law, I let my brother-in-law live in that offering collection room there in the corner of the sanctuary, who's not, not a Christian. And friends, the reason that this is so significant and important is, friends, not only if you remember had Tobiah tried to sabotage the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, he was an antagonist to to Nehemiah in chapters 4 through 6, but if you've been paying really careful attention to the book of Nehemiah as we've been going through this, you'll remember that a few times it actually mentions that Tobiah was an Ammonite. He was an enemy of the people of God. And so, friends, when Nehemiah returns, the very first thing that he returns to see is he finds the people neglecting God's law and neglecting his temple by giving this pagan opponent a five-star living arrangement inside the actual temple of God, within the temple of a God that he rejected. And that's the first evidence of spiritual decline we see here. Now, secondly, we not only see that Israel had begun to neglect their physical place of worship, but they also began to neglect their spiritual day of worship as well. And in verses 15 through 16, it says that, the people began bringing all their goods and produce into the city on the Sabbath to increase their profits. And on top of that, they also began encouraging the surrounding Gentile people, these Tyrians, to do the same thing. They began telling them to bring their goods, bring their fish into the city so the Israelites could start off their week by having fresh fish as meals. And so when Nehemiah attends his very first day, after three years being gone from the city, he attends his first worship service back in the city. The scene that he returns to is very much a scene that's similar to the temple that Jesus himself returned to in Matthew chapter 21. The scene where God's temple has become this trading post for profit rather than being a house of prayer and purity for the people. Now thirdly, we see also in this passage that the people begin compromising their faith within their families and their family values. Read with me verses 23 and 24. Verse 23 says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, And half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And so, friends, the final sin that Nehemiah witnesses as he returns back to the city is that the people of Israel had broken the covenant by intermarrying with the surrounding pagan nations. And as a result, some of the Israelite children, they could no longer understand or read Hebrew, which meant they couldn't understand the word of God. They couldn't read or understand their Bibles. And so, friends, when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, things are not the way that he left them. You know, despite the fact that back in chapter 10, the people had pledged themselves to obey this covenant, Nehemiah returns to a city where the temple's neglected, the Sabbath is neglected, the people of God are one generation away from completely cutting themselves off from the word of God. And friends, the question for us as we look at this passage is, how did things get this way? What happened in those three years that Nehemiah was gone? How did things get this bad? How did this process 
of spiritual decline happen within Israel? And friends, the answer to that question is it probably didn't happen overnight. But the answer is it probably happened gradually over a slow period of time. You know, last year, I had the privilege of going through a leadership book with some of the other pastoral staff here at this church. And we went through a book uh, written by Paul Tripp entitled Lead. And in one section of this book, Paul Tripp talks about how spiritual shifts and how spiritual decline takes place and how it happens in our lives, how it works. And I'm sort of paraphrasing and summarizing this, but essentially in answering the question, how do people go from Nehemiah chapter 10 to how they are in Nehemiah chapter 13, he says this, somewhere along the way in the life of a Christian, a subtle shift in your values is going to inevitably take place. Now, it's not a shift in your formal or your confessional values, like a change in your belief in the doctrine of the Trinity or a change in your belief about the resurrection and the ascension, but it's a shift in a change in your functional values. In other words, what you as a person see and think is important in life. And he says, as this shift occurs, what happens is, as a Christian, you begin to experience this subtle but this growing discontinuity between, on the one hand, your confessional values, the things that you profess are important and you value, and on the other hand, your functional values, now, values that you actually practice and you promote through your actions, through your words and your life and your decisions. And it's to the point where what you say and profess is most important in your life, you may not actually treat as important at all when people look at your life and when they look at your actions. And friends, it's that disconnect between confessional values on the one hand and functional values that we see in, here in Israel's decline. Because if you think about it, in every sin that Israel commits here in this chapter, what mattered to God and what was important to God, it was theologically important to the people because they were still God's people, but yet it wasn't functionally important to them. For example, for Eliashib, as God's priest, he was a priest of God's temple. He was a pastor, essentially, of the church. The temple was theologically important to him, and yet what we see was functionally more important to him was gaining power and stature through Tobiah, his brother-in-law's favor. As the people of God, they knew that the Sabbath, they knew that faithful marriages were important in life, they were important to God, theologically, and yet at the end of the day, when push came to shove, profit and money and romance and autonomy were functionally more important in their lives. And friends, that's the nature of how spiritual decline happens, not only in the lives of the Israelites, but also in our own lives. When friends, what's important to God and what matters to God most, it's slowly but steadily it no longer becomes important to you. Whether that's holiness, whether that's faithfully attending and being a part of the church and worshiping, whether that's integrity in the way that you do business, the way that you approach your work, whether it's how you spend your time and your money. And friends, before I move on to our second point, you know, for all of us here today, but you know, especially for those of you right now, if you're just honest with yourself, if you yourself are in the midst of a season of spiritual decline, or you just feel very apathetic towards God, you don't feel very close to God, the question that God's word wants you to ask yourself here this morning is, is what's important to God as you reflect in your life and on the Bible? Is what's important to God, is it still important to me? Does it matter to me? Not just theologically, but does it functionally matter in my life? And do I see that? This leads us to our second point. The seriousness of sin. You know, in this passage, we not only see this subtle spiritual decline that happens within the people of Israel, but we also get a glimpse into the seriousness of sin. And where we see that is actually in Nehemiah's responses to each of the failures and the sins of the people throughout this chapter. Now first, we'll just go through these briefly. First in verse eight, if you read verse eight again with me, when 
Nehemiah discovers what Eliashib had done in allowing his brother-in-law Tobiah to live in the chambers of the temple. Nehemiah says in verse 8, And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now, friends, if you're just reading the book of Nehemiah on your own, you come to the last chapter and you read verse 8, it's sort of easy for us to kind of gloss over this verse as saying essentially that Nehemiah had Tobiah and all this stuff just vacated from the temple. But friends, if you just read this verse carefully, what actually the scene that unfolds here, it's almost comical. Because <laughs> essentially, just to put this in perspective, here you literally have the highest ranking political leader in all of Jerusalem, literally the most powerful man in the entire city, and he's in a furious rage. And he doesn't have his servants, he doesn't have, he doesn't have his guards go in and escort Tobiah off the premises of the temple. But he himself literally goes in on this rampage in this chamber, and one by one, he grabs all of Tobiah's furniture, and he chucks it, and he hurls it outside of this room. That's how upset that Nehemiah was. Now, secondly, in verses 17 through 22, after Nehemiah sees the people neglecting the Sabbath, after he sees them selling all these goods and buying all these things on the Sabbath, what he does is he confronts the nobles and the leaders, and he rebukes them face to face. But on top of that, he goes the extra mile, and what he does is he has the gates of the city actually barred every week before the Sabbath so that no merchants can come in. But he says a couple times what happens is some of the merchants actually decided to just camp outside the city walls so that they could sneak in and trade on the Sabbath. And so what Nehemiah did is he says in verse 21, he verbally threatens them and says in verse 21, if you camp outside the wall again, you better square up because I'm going to lay my hands on you, he says in verse 21. I'm going to fight you if you try and camp outside the city walls. And to top it all off, finally in verse 22, Nehemiah has all the Levites, the servants of the temple, guard the gates to watch the Sabbath every single Sabbath so that no trading can happen. He does all of that and takes all these extreme measures just to make sure that the Israelites don't buy or sell or purchase anything on the Sabbath. Now, in our minds when we read this, it seems a little bit excessive. But friends, it actually gets even more extreme. Now, lastly, in verse 25, when Nehemiah sees that the people had intermarried with these pagan nations and that their children were no longer under, able to understand or read God's word, it says there in verse 25, Nehemiah says that I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, friends, at this point, some of you may be reading this chapter and reading all of this, and you may think, wow, Nehemiah has gone off the deep end. He's become this power-hungry, this abusive, this really harsh leader that everyone's afraid of in Jerusalem. He sounds like somebody that Christianity Today could write another podcast about. But friends, the question that we need to ask ourselves as we look at this passage and we, as we look at Nehemiah's responses to all this sin in this passage is, why did Nehemiah react this way in the first place? What made him so angry? What got him so worked up as he returned to the city and saw all the sins of the people? And friends, the, the question to that answer is, it's because Nehemiah had a biblical understanding and he had a biblical view of sin. In other words, he understood and he felt and he saw the seriousness and the grievousness of what sin is before the sight of God. And friends, that's something that I think, not only just in our world or in our culture, but even in the church that you and I as Christians, we began to lose sight of. Now, back in 2007, the author, Jerry Bridges, he came out with this book entitled Respectable Sins. I think our college ministry went through it a couple of years ago. But essentially, the premise of his book was essentially that in the church today, the concept of sin has been so watered down by our culture and by our society that we're no longer as Christians, we're no longer appalled, as appalled by sin 
as we ought to be or as we should be, like Nehemiah is in this chapter. And instead, as Christians in our modern day, we've actually adopted more of a tolerant approach towards sin. And he essentially says in the book that on the whole, as Christians, we appear to be more concerned with the flagrant sins of society out there than we are with the more subtle sins that occur in our hearts and our lives. And he says so often we actually indulge in so-called respectable or even acceptable sins in our eyes, and we do so without any sense of actually having sinned. And for example, our gossip or our unkind words about someone in the church or a brother or sister, they roll so easily off our tongues, and they happen without any awareness of wrongdoing on our part. Now, some of us here today, you may harbor hurts and pains over that happened years, maybe even decades ago, but you've gone through all that time without any effort on your part to reconcile or to forgive as God has forgiven you. You know, men look at and watch pornography in secret, and they justify it as saying it's a way to de-stress or it's just a mental escape. You know, others of us, we may look down our righteous and religious noses down at simple people around us, and yet we do so without any sense of brokenness at things like our own selfishness, our impatience, our anger, our critical spirits. And friends, in the book, Jerry Bridges, he goes on to say this, and I kind of just summarize and paraphrase this quote. But later on in the book, Jerry Bridges goes on to say that the result then is that for many of us as Christians, the awareness and the gravity of personal sin has effectively disappeared from our consciences. Yet the paradox of the Christian life is that those whose lives most reflect righteousness and holiness are usually those who are most keenly aware of their lack of it and who groan inwardly at the sin that resides in its place. In other words, friends, what Jerry Bridges and what Nehemiah 13 teach us is that one of the marks that you're growing in the Christian life, that you're actually growing as a Christian, is not just that you sin less or that you sin less extremely, but one of the ways that you know you're growing in the, as a Christian is actually that you're growing in your constant awareness of just how much you actually sin. You're growing in an awareness and in a sense and a feeling of just how sinful you actually are as a person before the sight of God, in your sensitivity to sin and how you respond to your sin. Friends, in this passage, the reason that the Israelites had fallen off, the reason that they declined so much spiritually in their lives in just three years was because they had completely lost sense of, on the one hand, God's holiness, but in light of that, they lost a sense of their own sinfulness before a holy God. Friends, if you reread the chapter, there's not a single passage, verse in this passage that says that the people of Israel felt remorse or that says that the people of Israel turned from their sin and they repented. Instead, all that's mentioned is that Nehemiah had to rebuke them. And so the question for us, brothers and sisters here today, is are you growing right now or have you been growing in a deeper awareness of your sin? recently in your life? Have you been growing in your sense of how much your sins, even the ones that you may gloss over or try and justify in your life, how much they actually offend and grieve the heart of God? Or friends, here this morning, are there sins in your life that slowly over time, but subtly, you begun to tolerate, you begun to accept, or you even began to try and justify to your own mind and heart and to the mind and heart of God? Sins that may not seem very serious to you, but sins that are still serious in the sight of God. Because, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, the reality is, before we move on, the reality is, even when you and I are lax towards our sins, we don't take them seriously, the truth is that God in his faithfulness, he is still going to be at work in your life, 
calling you to repentance, calling you to renewal, like he did throughout the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But friends, the thing is, part of that process and part of that calling you is going to be leading you to the place where you begin to see and you begin to feel the utter brokenness and the depravity and the weight of your sin. Because friends, if you don't feel that, how are you ever going to experience revival and renewal and repentance in your life? So friends, the only way that's going to happen is as in this passage for Nehemiah, when he returned back to the city, he felt and he experienced the seriousness of not only his own sins as he began the book in chapter 1, but the seriousness, seriousness of sin around him and how that looks like in the sight of God. This brings us to our last point. The surety of salvation. You know, it's interesting because when you read this final chapter of Nehemiah, you realize that you're, in one sense, you're basically reading an entry from his personal journal or from his personal, personal diary. You know, the whole thing in chapter 13, it's all written in the first person, and it not only documents and accounts Nehemiah's personal experiences and what just happens day to day, but it also accounts and gives us insight into his thoughts, into his mind, and into his heart. And friends, the one thing that you'll notice as you read this chapter is that Nehemiah actually, he kind of seems to be preoccupied with and about something throughout this entire chapter. Now, we didn't read all these verses, but three times throughout this passage, Nehemiah basically prays the exact same prayer to God over and over and over in this passage. Now, for example, in verse 14, Nehemiah prays this to God in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In verse 22... Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And finally, at the very end of the book, in the final concluding words of this book in verse 31, Nehemiah says in verse 31, Remember me, O my God, for good. Remember me for all the good things that I've done. Remember me forever. Now, friends, what is going on here? Nehemiah is essentially, he's praying the exact same prayer over and over and over to God throughout this chapter to remember him, to remember all his good works and all the good deeds that he's done for the people of God. Now friends, just as a side note, I don't think this means or teaches us or shows us that Nehemiah didn't believe in grace alone or that he somehow believed that he can be made right with God by his works or by the things that he does. But friends, at the very least, I think what's going on here is this. You know, for a lot of people, but I think especially in an odd way, especially for pastors or people in ministry or leaders, you know, when they get towards the end of their career in their ministry or they, when they get towards the end of their lives, and what happens is there's a very real temptation for their self-identity to become tied up and defined by what they've done or what they've accomplished throughout their career or through their ministry or their life. Now, friends, if you just put yourselves in the shoes of Nehemiah, just think about it. Nehemiah started out as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He then became the governor of the entire province of Jerusalem, of all of God's people, the holy city. He was the leader in, the, in a historic undertaking in redemptive history and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, reestablishing and repopulating the city. And yet, as we come to chapter 13, the legacy that this man is going to leave behind is a people that is just as, if not more sinful, than when Israel was exiled. Just, not, just as, if not more sinful, than when he started his work as governor. People who neglected God's temple. People who neglected the Sabbath. People who came mixed up with the rest of the world. And so from an earthly standpoint, brothers and sisters, Nehemiah must have thought, and he probably thought that, he had failed as a leader. 
he was a complete failure. Because he looks back on his life and all that he's done, and he looks back, and this legacy that he's going to leave behind is a legacy that's tainted by sin and by decline and by failure. And that's why as he returns to the city and he rebukes all the people for their sin over and over, he sets up all these reforms and tries to fix them spiritually. He keeps urging God, Lord, remember me for everything that I've done that was good. Don't remember me for all my sins or all the mistakes or all the ways in which I failed as a leader. Remember my legacy. Let it be a good one, Lord. You know, it's interesting because, especially I think in recent years, you know, this idea and this concept of, you know, leaving behind or having a legacy, it's, begins, it's become such a, I think, deep-rooted and ingrained part of our society. You know, for example, you know, living in a world of cancel culture these days, people's legacies, they're now essentially defined by their past mistakes or things that they've done in the past, things that they've said on TV or said on interviews that were uh, harmful or wrong in the past, maybe even 10 years ago. I think one of the biggest arenas of culture where legacy is talked about the most is actually in the arena of sports. You know, many of you have probably at least at this point, you've watched, or at the very least, you've heard about this ESPN documentary called The Last Dance, spotlighting the career of Michael Jordan, one of the greatest NBA players of all time. And it's interesting because in an interview with Sports Illustrated, Michael Jordan actually revealed in this interview that the moment that he agreed to release the rights to all the footage in this documentary, it was during the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers championship parade where LeBron James had won his third ring, where he had won his first title for the city of Cleveland, and where he made NBA history by, for the first time ever, coming back from a three-to-one deficit against the Golden State Warriors. Now, in the interview, Michael Jordan, he didn't explicitly say or explicitly mention this, but I think it's pretty clear that the reason that he agreed to do this documentary was because in his mind, his legacy was at stake. He wanted to be remembered as the GOAT of basketball. He wanted, people to, he wanted to remind people through this documentary that I'm still the greatest of all time. And friends, at the end of the day, whether you're someone like Nehemiah, or whether you're someone like Michael Jordan, or if you're just a regular person, a regular Christian, friends, the truth is that, you know, a legacy, leaving behind some sort of legacy, is something that we all want in our lives, don't we? You know, when you come to the end of your career, if you're working, or if you come even to the end of your life, friends, we all want to know that our lives had meaning, they had significance, that they mattered, that your decisions and the things that you did with and through your life, that it actually had significance. It wasn't just a waste. When we all come to the end of our lives, we all want our lives to be acknowledged and remembered by people, remembered by God. And so, friends, in some ways, in a secular sense, you could almost say that in our society today, someone's legacy has almost become their salvation. Their legacy has become a form of salvation because if you think about it, you know, legacy is something that has lasting significance. It's something that in some sense almost has eternal ramifications and it's based on what you've accomplished and what you've done through your life, how you've lived and used your life. Now friends, the good news here is that although the book of Nehemiah, it kind of is depressing at the end and it ends kind of on a down note with the people of Israel in spiritual decline, with their leader, Nehemiah, wanting desperately to preserve his legacy, to be affirmed and to be remembered by God. Friends, the good news is that one day, about 400 years after Nehemiah prayed this prayer, God answered his prayer to be remembered. But friends, he did so in a way that we wouldn't expect. Because what God did was God gave both Nehemiah and us 
he gave us a legacy. He gave us a promise that we would be remembered throughout all eternity, but not based on our works and our life, but he gave us a legacy based upon the life and the works of another. And friends, that person's name is Jesus. Because on the cross, as Jesus was hanging on the cross there for our sins, he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scripture tells us that God forsook and he abandoned and he forgot Jesus. On the cross, in other words, God blotted out Jesus' name. So friends, that when you and I put our faith in him as our savior, that our names would never be blotted out, that we would always be remembered by God. As Revelation chapter three, verse five tells us, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers, in other words, the one who puts their faith in me will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And friends, that is a picture of what our legacy is as Christians. That on the last day and throughout all of eternity that we won't be remembered. We won't be remembered by our sins or our baggage or the skeletons in our closet like cancel culture tells us. But at the same time, we won't be remembered or defined by what we have or haven't accomplished in and through our lives and what we've done. But friends, instead our legacies will be defined by one thing and one thing alone. And that is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In other words, friends, our legacies will be defined by the fact that on the last day and throughout all of eternity, that Jesus will confess our names before the Father, before all his angels in heaven as our advocate, as our Savior, and as our King who has redeemed us. So brothers and sisters, as we come to a close, I pray that as we continue to navigate another difficult year of the pandemic, another difficult year of COVID, that we would do so by starting out this year by reorienting our lives on what's important to God, not just theologically, but functionally in our lives. Friends, that we would continue to grow in a deeper awareness of our sins before God and learn how to repent and experience renewal. But friends, that most of all, that we could set out into this new year with a sense of freedom and a sense of joy, knowing that our salvation, that our legacies are secure, not in what we have done or accomplished in our lives, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for us as our priest, our king, and our savior. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning, which even though, Lord, as we look at this cha- looked at this chapter, Lord, it's grim and depressing, and it shows us, um, or just the depths and reality of the brokenness and the sin within our own lives. Lord, we thank you that at the end of the day, the reason that you remember us, Lord, the reason that you have redeemed us is not because of anything that we have done or accomplished. Lord, the reason that you've redeemed us is because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, as we continue to reflect on and just grow in that truth, we pray that that would uh, show forth in the way that we uh, just live our lives, Lord, that we would be reminded continually to fix our hearts and our minds on things that are important to you, that are important to your heart, that you would continue to grow us in a deeper sense of just how sinful we are, which in turn, Lord, would show us even in a deeper sense of just how loved we are by you and how deep your grace is for us. And so, Lord, continue to remind us of these truths and grow us together as a church. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.